Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast, a Christmas special of sorts. We'll discuss India being rolled out for their lowest ever score in Test Cricket at Adelaide. We'll look forward to the three Boxing Day tests coming up later this week, as well as reminiscing on Boxing Day tests of years gone by. And we'll also be reviewing this very strange year by sharing our moments of the year. I'm Yaz Rana and with me over Zoom is the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, new mag out this week, by the way, Phil Walker, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. We've got to kick things off in Adelaide, where Australia bowled India out for 36 as they went 1-0 up in the border Gavaskar Trophy. It was the lowest men's test score in 55 years, India's lowest ever, the joint lowest ever in Australia, and the joint fifth lowest of all time. Phil, what were your initial thoughts and reactions when you woke up to see the score and then the highlights? Um, as often, I, I wake up and I try and rub the sleep out of my eyes and try and face the grim reality of life itself. Uh, and this, not for the first time, rather threw me. Um, I thought I might have sort of stumbled in another, in some sort of alternative reality. Well, this is the reality of playing cricket in Australia against, against that pace attack. Um, this is extreme. Of course it is. It's utterly extreme. Uh, but the writing was on the wall from the previous evening and I was, I was watching those, those last few deliveries, albeit under lights, pretty, pretty sure, nowhere near one. Uh, and it had, I'm not being wise after the event, but it had that feel, the way that that last hour, hour and a half went the previous evening, that, and with the ball having swung all day for the two days up to that point anyway, it just had the feeling that something was going to give. Uh, and when you lose a quick one early doors and you're playing against that lot, on their turf, in front of a crowd, with perhaps the most complete battery of quicks that they've had in a long, long time, um, all at the top of their game, and with a storied spinner as well. It's a serious, serious uh, attack, this. It might be a, a one-for-the-ages attack. And there was that sense that something, something was going to give. I, I did wake up expecting the game to be well down the line. I didn't expect it to have been over by lunch. Uh, so yeah, there was a shock in that respect, but, uh, the way that the game had gone for those two days beforehand, it didn't feel like it was going to go much past three days. It did feel like it was going to go past at least seven sessions, uh, in the event it didn't. Um, it, it's very, very difficult to see where they come, how they come back from something like this, especially of course, with the big man going home. Ben, you said last week that if you judge an attack by the strength of its weakest member, this might be one of the best attacks of all time. 
before Adelaide, do you think there was enough appreciation for how good this attack is? It struck me that with few exceptions, it was largely a case of brilliant bowling. There was a Crickvis graphic that demonstrated the wicket-taking deliveries and what each did, what each ball did, and uh, a few of them kind of like swung in, then seemed out just around the top of off stump. Was this was more the case of Australia being absolutely brilliant than anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think when it's 36 all out, there's always going to be a few contributing factors. It can't be just bowling brilliance or just uh, batting frailty. There's got to be a, a bit of both. But yeah, I, I think they were like, absolutely amazing. I think that, uh, yeah, that, that, that Pat Cummins is a, is a freak and would have, you know, loads and loads of fibres by now if it wasn't for the fact that he was in such a, a strong bowling attack and they all just kind of complement each other. He, you know, it's, it's amazing as well. He's a, you know, a first change bowler. I can't many first change bowlers not getting the new ball uh, better than him. They almost needed to be like that good to get Australia back into the game. Like if India had been defending 200 in that fourth innings, you'd have given them a pretty good chance. And as it was, they only needed, you know, like, they didn't need to do that well in the third innings to make it like a, a proper game, considering how well the first swings had gone for them. And uh, yeah, in the event, it was just <laughs> completely, completely turned over. Joe, what about you? What were your, what were your thoughts on 36 all out? I to, when I woke up, I, it was a sense of disappointment, really, because it felt like a fantastic test match was, was brewing. And I'm sure if you were watching that passage live, it must have been absolutely thrilling. But I was looking forward to waking up to watching a test match kind of coming towards its crescendo uh, and obviously it was all all done and, and as, as Phil kind of alluded to it's not just this test match it's as we know as, as England cricket fans that when Australia get on a roll in Australia they're extremely hard to beat and it, it already feels like one of those tours where everything is kind of conspiring against India with Kohli going home as, as was known beforehand but Shami not being able to play a part in the series uh, Australia right on top in every aspect I mean the only thing you could you could say it the kind of chink of light for India is that Australia don't at the moment look like scoring massive totals. So they can keep themselves in the game potentially without scoring huge amounts of runs themselves. But it does mean that their bowlers are going to have to do something pretty fantastic to step up to the level that um, Cummins and Hazel would have. Well, this is obviously the most dramatic collapse of the lot. India have struggled for runs away from home in the last three years or so. Phil, how much do you think this is down to just the, the lack of time teams now have to prepare for tours? Um, yeah, India had a couple of warm-up games, but a lot of their white ball players were playing the T20 and ODI series. Now they're 1-0 down. There isn't a tour game for players to get back into Nick. How, is, is this just a pattern we're going to see more and more of in Test cricket? Good question. And the answer is inevitably yes. How many cricketers talk about the the essential sort of phys- physical challenges of reverting from scoring white ball runs to scoring red ball runs and how many bowlers say the equivalent thing. It's a very, very different skill set, but you're expected to turn one off and one on pretty much overnight. Uh, this is the nature of the modern game. As we know, we can't have it all. We have to have certain consequences of the, of the scheduling and certain consequences of the primacy and power and potency of white ball cricket over and above the red. Uh, we, w- we will see teams flattened in sessions more and more, as indeed we have seen of late. Uh, you know, there's that infamous stat about England. You know, they were bowled out in a session five times under the Bayliss era, having not managed to, to, to pull off something as, as abject as that since 1936, 1937. 
did it five times in a sort of two-year period. Now, this is, this is England, sure, but there will be many other examples of teams that don't just capitulate, but they just fall down in a matter of minutes. And, and sure, there's, a, there's an Australian juggernaut element to it, and it's not the first time that teams have been skittled. Of course it's not, but uh, we will see this more and more. As, as cricket teams are expected just to, just to flip from one very distinct way of playing the game to another very distinct way of playing the game. Uh, and yeah, condensed tours in, between test matches is, is, is an ongoing issue, but it's been an issue that's been, been around for a long, long time. How can you, how can you be someone like Ridman Saha, thrown into the team questionably? Uh, you know, he's a good cricketer, but he's struggling for runs. How, how, is, how is he expected to, to, to find any kind of form? Uh, you can obviously apply that to Prithvi Shaw right at the top of the show. I mean, my, my instinct is that they might just have to drop him because he's just so late on it. Forget whether, how technically questionable he might. He's actually late on the quicks. Uh, they might drop him for Shubman Gill. But the point is, it will already now be chaotic. Um, Australia's batsmen would have had, what, six, eight knocks to, to either get into form or perversely in Joe Burns' case, get out of form. Um, and India would have turned up there and, and had, had a, some... Uh, in the middle practice, as they call it, as if that's any substitute for anything, and then you're into a test match in a cauldron. Uh, it's, it's little wonder, really, that the odds are so stacked against the way teams getting results in, in foreign climes. On, um, on switching between formats, though, and obviously it's so much easier when it's your home conditions, but it only kind of it even shows the mastery of Hazelwood even more that he hadn't played a first-class game since last December, so more than a year since his last game with the Red Bull. Uh, and he just puts it on the spot like that. Cummins, I think, played slightly more recently in, in January of this year, but still almost a full year since they played with the Red Bull. They've been playing white ball internationals against India in lead-ups to this, and yet they just get it bang on the spot immediately. Uh, and it's just so, so hard for those Indian batsmen. My impression, seeing those wickets fall very quickly on a, on a kind of um, compilation, it didn't look like there were too many bad shots in there. Kohli's looked like one of the worst to me, playing a, a really wide delivery. They didn't need to go near, but... Overall, you've just got to kind of take your house to the Australian bowlers and, and hope they aren't quite as good every day. The one, one, you're absolutely right. The one thing I would just add, and it's a tiny morsel of comfort for Indian fans, uh, they've been in this position many times before, of course, in Australia. Uh, they were 2-0 down going into, into a Perth test match. And I think it was maybe the Harbhajan Singh era, but I can't remember exactly what the year was. Uh, and 2-0 down in Australia... You turn up at the Wacker, you're a, you're a one in 50 chance. And they won that test match. They won that test match out of nowhere. So uh, I'm not going to be calling for 4-0 just yet. Uh, I wouldn't completely rule out a pride-driven rear guard by India. Uh, and they could maybe still nick a test match. As Joe says, Australia's batting is hardly intimidating. You know, they have, they have a couple of very iffy openers. They've got a debutant at number six and a Travis Head, who is, who is no one's idea of a world-class player at number five. So it's not like they are. And with Tim Payne at seven, who batted really well, but Tim Payne is, you know, he's a, he's a workman-like number seven keeper batsman. So it's not like Australia are overloaded with runs, but it's very hard to penetrate that bowling attack. Yeah, and Smith in the first ruts of his test career, basically, he's uh, gone, what, seven tests and 13 innings, I think, about 100, which is his longest stretch since his first Test 100. The, the one thing is, is that David Warner might well return for the Boxing Day test, which would be quite a significant uh, extra bit of uh, batting firepower for Australia, especially when India's uh, 
Indians are leaving. My word, I actually first tuned in to day two when Australia were 120 for seven, I think it was, 119 for seven when I first started watching day two. Uh, and uh, Harsha Bogle was interviewed from India as part of kind of the live commentary feed, if you like. And he was, he was cock a hoop. I mean, he's rarely not, but he was cock a hoop. And he thought, he thought this, this is it. You know, the Australian commentary team were down. India had that game. They, they dropped something like six chances on mm. day two. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, gave up uh, a surmountable first innings lead. Uh, very surmountable by the end of it, of course. But they had the game there. And a, and a first innings lead of, of 80 to 100. And it would have been hard to imagine them getting bowled out for 36, such is the nature of momentum and, in, in the, and the way that the waves wash through a test match. Phil mentioned it there. Um, the, the passage of play late on day two where Tim Payne got Australia out up to a competitive score um, was, was absolutely crucial. Joe, is, is Tim Payne actually quite good? Um, I think I saw the stat of the day that Tim Payne actually has the second highest batting average of any Australian cricketer batsman ever. Um, before he came into bat, um, the commentators were, were talking about whether or not he can keep his place in the side if he's not scoring any runs before he'd even batted. There's always, that's, that always seems to be, you know, that question's always hovering around Payne. Some kind of uh, caretaker captain before he's given back to Smith or maybe someone else. Well, you said, is he quite good? And I would say, yes, he is quite good. But I wouldn't say he's a hell of a lot better than that. Um, that I, saw, I saw you guys have posted that, that stat about Australian keepers, which is quite an interesting one. It's one of those ones that sounds quite, uh, you're like, wow. And actually, when you think about it, it's perhaps not all that surprising in that Gilchrist did it for so long in the era where keepers scored runs. And since then, Australia have struggled. There's been so many people who have filled that position. So it's not necessarily saying quite as much as it, as it might sound on... Um, on first impressions but you know he's he's undoubtedly done a fantastic job as captain whether that is even allowing other people to captain the side and he almost kind of supports them as, as some people have suggested certainly in last summer's ashes um but he is a, he's a crucial member of that side and he's he deserves a huge amount of credit for the kind of choppy waters he, he got them through initially um i was surprised he's 36 isn't he i think that's right yeah which i was surprised that's a couple of years older than i thought he was so you wouldn't think he's got a huge amount longer left but he's getting to the point where he can earn the right to go out on top which is never what you thought would be the case with Payne he always as you say had that aura of the caretaker leader who'd be moved along when when there was a better opportunity for someone else but actually he's he's really carved out a, a proper legacy as Australian captain and finally on on the collapse I'm, I'm quite interested in the the psychology of spectacular collapses and do you think there's a critical point in a collapse where the anxiety becomes infectious in the dressing room yeah, possibly, but I feel I feel like this was kind of unique in a collapse, partly just because of how like total it was. Like I think uh, uh, there was a good piece on King Cricket about why this collapse was in a way not that bad because a lot of collapses or low totals you see teams have done kind of like a lot of things badly. Like maybe they've like lost three or four up against the new ball and then sort of got a bit lucky, made it through that period, but have then you know, given away a couple to the spinner and then someone blows away the tail. Whereas this was just like the, the new wall bowling was so good and like all the edges went to hand and stuff that it was like, like that was that they almost didn't have time to get too panicky because it was just over so quickly. Like it wasn't like, you know, you realize you're five down and then you've got to like scratch together like 15 runs over like 10 overs and then you lose two more and then you're all out for 70. It was like it was just all over in such a flash, I guess. The ball by ball of like Hazelwood's spell was so stark as well just because it was just like 
just so many Ws and like just so few runs. I mean, five for eight is just ridiculous figures. And they, I think four was like maybe the last ball he bowled went for four. There, there probably is in most collapses kind of a point when like, you know, everyone's sort of rushing around, putting their pads on, looking at each other, thing like, what the hell's going on here? But this felt different because it was just like, so all of a sudden, I don't even think India had time to blink before they were all out, really. I spoke to Wiz in India's Adia Sharma earlier, who gives an Indian perspective on the collapse and tells us how he thinks India will change things going into the rest of the series. Thanks for joining us, Adia. First up, what's the reaction been like in India? Indian cricket fans are not known to be the most patient at the best of times. So what are they like after their team's been bowled out for 36? Uh, hi, yes, it's good to be back. Uh, I think the, the, the initial collective feeling was that of disbelief. Uh, because India was in a strong position in the test and it was not something that happened in the first morning. And the biggest talking point in the first innings was something as simple as Pippi Shaw's batting technique or the, the Rahane Kohli mix-up. From that to something as big as in, uh, India's lowest total in 90 years of test cricket was something difficult to digest. After that, I think there was this acknowledgement uh, that it wasn't just India batting poorly, but that Australia really genuinely bowled well. I think the good part was that... Um, there wasn't too much hate on Twitter. There was plenty of humor, lots of memes being circulated. And I think the next day, um, we saw a lot of videos and reels of Rahul Dravid batting and fans suddenly missing that old technique and, you know, stats and graphics of MS Dhoni and how he bailed India out of a collapse some 10, 12 years ago. Who's been on the receiving end of most of the blame, though? I understand that the, a lot of the Twitter reaction has been humorous, but there's still, at the same time, there'll be a lot of fans who uh, are not happy with the performance, who are thinking that maybe the Indian setup are getting things wrong. Who's been on the receiving end of most of the blame, and, and, and what, what, what are people saying uh, the changes should be ahead of the second test? Um, I think generally when something as big as this happens, there are one or two scapegoats, and I feel that there would have been much more focus on Kohli. A lot of uh, a lot of that would have been directed on Kohli, but now that he's he's going back, he decided that before he's going back, there isn't much. And I think there's there's more curiosity as to how Rahane will captain the side in his absence because we haven't seen a lot of Rahane, the captain, at the top level. Uh, that said, there are a couple of automatic changes that are going to happen. Kohli is not there. Shami is going to miss out. So two spots are. Uh, open uh, and the fact that Prithvi Shaw hasn't done well like his recent scores have not been great and the way he got dismissed in the two innings uh, and the, the the kind of backing Shuman Gill seems to be getting I think he might get a look in India's record with the bat overseas under Kohli hasn't been great what, what do you put that down to and how do you think that can change is it better preparation be it using a different ball or preparing differently Preparing different pitches at, at home, or is it simply down to not picking the, the right players? For a concern as big as this, it's a combination of things. It it does affect the fact that like India does do well at home and like can't do the same thing overseas, the same sort of success they can't find. Uh, I think a, a, a bit of a reason for that is also that the the time to prepare is less. Uh, before there used to be bigger windows for teams to come play a couple of tour games get used to it. There were, there used to be practice games between matches, um, you know, for someone to, to iron out something in their techniques. Uh, because of condensed tours now, and, you know, T20Is being there and, you know, further reducing the window, you'd, I, I feel that there is not enough time to prepare, especially because there's so much difference in how 
the conditions are back home and abroad and uh, focusing just on the team i think uh, india is still still trying to figure out who are the other batsmen apart from the main three uh, pujara kohli and rahane mayank agarwal has done well in the recent past but apart from these four there aren't any um, sure shot candidates it's always like a bit of chopping changing happening and we're still trying to find the second opener we're still trying to find a number 5 number 6 and all of that so those uh, those discussions each time there's an overseas tour uh, that doesn't help so i think they still they still need to look for a settled combination and until that doesn't happen there could be a few collapses like this not not this or this extent but shami's obviously now been ruled out who who do you think's going to come in for shami and um whoever it is it's going to be a debut so tell us a little bit about that that likely debutant so yeah there's a toss up between saini and siraj um both have done well in the last two years uh, at the domestic level both are the kind of bowlers who who can do well in australian conditions personally i i i do i do prefer saini because of his uh, you know his fiery attitude he loves to just surprise a batsman with a bouncer just stare back at him the general um, energy that he brings along with his bowling but i think uh, given his recent form it wasn't too great in the limited over series i know it's not a criteria to judge but siraj has done well in the practice games and um, i feel he might get the nod ahead of saini a small bit of england news this morning england have signed jack callis up as a batting consultant for their tour of sri lanka only satin tendulkar and ricky ponting have scored more test runs in callis seems like a handy man to have around the camp Moving on to New Zealand, we're two thirds the way through the T20I series between the Black Caps and Pakistan. New Zealand are two nil up in the first game. Debutant Jacob Duffy took four for twenty to help restrict Pakistan to 153 for nine before New Zealand chased that with seven balls to spare. In the second game, despite an unbeaten 99 from 40-year-old Muhammad Hafiz, Pakistan could only reach 163 for six from their 20 overs. This time it was Tim Sowell who took the wickets. taking 4 for 21 Tim Seifert who we talked about a few weeks ago it was a really good find for New Zealand at the top of the order he blasted 84 not out and Kane Williamson back off the birth of his daughter went home with an unbeaten 57 Ben uh yeah i mean it's not news to say that Kane Williamson is good at batting but there was a just a, a three ball stretch in that second T20i when uh the uh So the first ball was kind of like a sort of chest height short ball, and he kind of he was off both feet by the time he sort of back cut it just to get on top of the bounce. It kind of burst through the fielder's hands and then went before. Uh, next ball was like a proper bounce, a head height. He just sort of like arches back a little bit and just does the tiniest little ramp, send it on the way to six. And then the next was like a sort of a bit fuller again outside the off stump. He just like holds his bat there and it just like glides off it down to find third man for another four. And he's kind of he's barely hit the ball and got. Uh, 14 or three balls, uh, and it was just kind of yeah. He's just a obviously just an absolute master, and kind of obviously and, and then in, in the end as well, there was just so many sort of those you know quick singles, the dabs into the leg side. He got stuck a little bit towards the end, but it was just a yeah, just an absolute brilliant knock, and really really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, he's in pretty good form at the moment. There's one more game in that series to go before the test stuff gets underway on Boxing Day. The big news there is that Babrazam is out of at least the first test. With Mohammad Rizwan assuming the captaincy, that's obviously not good news for Pakistan as they come up against a red-hot New Zealand. Joe, how do you see that series going? Uh, obviously, New Zealand are in great form at the moment, but it is still a fairly established Pakistan top seven with a very exciting bowling attack. It is. I mean, I, I feared that this would be quite a one-sided contest, uh, given New Zealand's dominance at home, given the way they 
dispatched West Indies, given that Pakistan don't always tour especially well. Uh, and Babar Azam uh, being injured for at least the first test is, is not good news for anyone other than New Zealand fans, certainly not for neutrals and or Pakistan fans. Uh, I, I think it will be 2-0 New Zealand and I think it will be two relatively comfortable wins. I do feel for Pakistan and West Indies as well. I mean, West Indies obviously spent so much time in England in the kind of biosecure bubbles and they've gone over to New Zealand and got thumped and, and I do fear for Pakistan that the same thing is going to happen to them. The other series getting underway on Boxing Day is the one between South Africa and Sri Lanka. It's still not quite clear who definitely is and definitely isn't available for South Africa. At least 10 of the 19 players in the South Africa squad took part in domestic matches last week in which cases of COVID-19 were detected. Two unnamed South African players have been removed from the squad after testing for COVID-19. And there are seven players in that squad who are yet to play test cricket. Watch out for Aidan Markram. He's, he's, he's been in very good form too in South African first-class cricket this year. His last four scores are 149, 121, 113 and 75. Worth remembering that Sri Lanka won the last series between the two sides in South Africa last year, 2-0. Um, ben, you wanted to pick out one player from Sri Lanka who is doing quite well at the moment and is quite exciting. Yeah, well, uh, it's Winindu Hasaranga, who's a, a 23-year-old leg-spinning all-rounder. Um, to be honest, I, I've seen a little bit of him just in, in, in the LPL, but not, not a huge amount. He's not played a test yet. Got very, very handy first-class numbers, a batting average of 43 and a bowling average of 27, which is pretty good. But it's more just that Mickey Arthur has talked him up uh, in a way you don't get uncapped players talked about all that much. He said, uh, I think he's going to be among the 10 most valuable players in the world next year. Um, so if he's anywhere near as good as that would suggest, then he'll be one to watch out for. I think it would be an intriguing series on the whole. I mean, Stranker have won the last four tests against Africa, two home, two away, I think. And obviously are looking to sort of repeat that magnificent series when they had at the beginning of 2019. So yeah, could be closer than I think you'd expect from that series, just looking at you know who the two sides are. Mm. Well, watching Boxing Day tests uh, is, is one of the few Christmas rituals that we're still allowed to do. Um, so we're going to talk about some of our favourite Boxing Day memories from years gone by. Uh, Phil, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, why not? Um, my, my suitably miserablest tale comes from 2006-07. Uh, my first of three tours so far to Australia. Um, uh, I, I don't tend to, to see much in the way of, of English England fight let alone wins. I've never seen England win a test match in Australia in three, three tours so far. Um, and the 06-07 game was obviously an MC, MCG experience. We cooked our Christmas dinner the day before, me and three friends of mine. And uh, we went along full of expectation, despite obviously being 3-0 down. There's, we literally dropped. Um, we, we flew over Perth when... Uh, Monty Panesar was was smacking one up in the air uh, to lose that that game and with it the series. So we literally landed with the, the series already gone. But nonetheless, we we rocked up at Melbourne in the morning. Uh, it was freezing cold. That's the thing I tend to remember. It was dark, overcast, murky, freezing cold. I had a scarf on and gloves over my trademark denim jacket at the time. Uh, Joe will remember that. It was, it was a legendary piece of kit. And I, I watched Strauss and Cook scrap around manfully for an hour or so and then they threw the ball to Warren the local lad uh, who'd had a pretty good career up to that point 699 test wickets and with that sense of who writes your scripts destiny as if the game can be bent to the will of somebody's greatness Warren rocked up and in the second or third over threw up a 
a pretty innocuous half volley to Strauss from around the wicket. Strauss inexplicably played all around it, obviously undone by the moment and the occasion. It hit his off stump, cleaned him up, and there was his 700th right there. And then for, for, for the rest of the day, England felt almost psychologically duty-bound to give Warren the day. And so they ended up, Warren took about five for 30, I think, on that first day. England, from a decent start, were all out for, for next to nothing. Um, and that was it. That was the end of the game, pretty much as a contest. Uh, I did rock up the following day on the 27th. Uh, having had quite a late night the night before. Uh, and Australia somehow contrived to lose five wickets quite quickly, and England were still technically in the game. And then Andrew Simons and Matt Hayden, you might remember, smashed a, a partnership of about 250-odd. Uh, and so I, I sat through that. By the end of the game, I, I realised that I hadn't seen England take a wicket all game, uh, despite having had tickets for every, every, every one of those days. Uh, and it was pretty much the same in Sydney thereafter. For some reason, I've still insisted on going back twice. Uh, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'll be trying to, trying to get myself there this time next year as well. God knows what's wrong with me. Yeah, I was going to say, for the, fake, for, the, for the sake of England fans, I guess we hope that you don't go. Um, and and, look, and look, looking back, Ben and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, looking back at um, Ashes tours where England have been absolutely hammered, if you look through the scorecard, you can kind of remember brief passages of play where England fans would have felt quite optimistic. And obviously remember them as being totally miserable tours, but they, they, it's almost the, 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 the half good session uh, on day two that gets England just into the game that kind of uh, makes it all, all worse. I, I, would, I just want to come back here because you're absolutely right. And for some reason uh, this morning, I ended up watching uh, the two minute YouTube videos produced by Cricket Australia that covered the Brisbane test match. England out there last time round in 2017, where, you know, it's remembered for the James Vince run out. But there were other kind of moments in that game where England were absolutely in the scrap. And, and it reminded me a bit of the India test match just gone. On paper, it's, it's obviously an absolute thrashing and it's a humiliation for India. Uh, but there were moments, the Kohli run out on day one, in, India were in a pretty good position considering the nature of the conditions. Day two, as we discussed earlier, and England were in that same same boat. First Test match out there three years ago, they were they were winning the game at certain moments. Australia were a hundred behind with three wickets in hand on on their first innings. Uh, but this is what happens when you see cricket out there. Uh, you, you have these little glimpses of hope, little glimpses where you think, okay, maybe they can, maybe they can actually compete with this this monster. Uh, and then and then they get wrestled to the ground, and then they can't get up from there. Joe, you've got a slightly happier Boxing Day memory for England fans. <laughs> He's got the only one. Yeah, well, I don't know why Phil's making such fuss. I've been to one Ashes tour and it was quite easy, actually. Bit of a walk in the park. Um, but having said that, I mean, that, that's obviously the 10-11 series I was out there for, um, at all five tests. But it's easy to forget, given the way that Melbourne and Sydney went, that ahead of the Melbourne test, it was one all. Uh, Johnson and Harris had blown England away at the Wacker. Uh, and I reckon if you'd taken a straw poll of England fans at that point, at one all with two to play, the overwhelming majority would have said we'd lose out there just based on, on recent history. Uh, and then you'll remember that Strauss won the toss and uh, elected to bowl, which uh, I was, as a junior report, I was in the kind of overspill of the overspill. I was in a sort of glorified broom cupboard with a window, probably had one of the worst seats in the house. Um, but I think I was just kind of happy to be there. But I remember remember the murmurings in that broom cupboard were that kind of Strauss had, had bottled it, that he was, that England was afraid of facing uh, Australia's quicks, a bit like kind of Nasser at the Gabba a few years earlier. 
uh, and they'd taken the sort of easy option. But actually, that was completely wrong way of looking at it. It was a, it was a very brave call in itself. The conditions, it was like kind of day one of a test at Headingley. Perfect for England. And uh, the masterstroke of winning the toss and also deciding to pick Bresnan over Stephen Finn, who at that point was the leading wicket taker in the series, but had gone for a few and wasn't really able to bowl dry in the way that side needed him to. And then everything just fell into place. 58 for four at lunch. Things looking pretty good. All out by T for 98. Uh, and by Stumps, England are 157 for none. And there'd been a lot of PR in the build-ups in that test match about a record crowd at the MCG, which they didn't quite get, fell short of that. But by the end of that day, there were hardly any Australians there. And then for the rest of that test match, they were kind of shutting off section after section of the MCG because they just didn't have enough people to fill it. So they were putting all their staff into a smaller and smaller section, which by the end was basically just the Barmy Army and all the England supporters who couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's amazing to have a test match by the end of day one, effectively won. The Ashes retained, the Aussies broke, and that was Ricky Ponting's last ever test match as Australia captain as well because he missed the, the Sydney test with injury and then retired after the World Cup. Uh, and then the rest of that series was as one-sided an Ashes series as I grew up watching only this time. It was England who were the side being utterly ruthless. Uh, I mean, just other than the Australian fans just leaving, what, were the Australian, what was the general Australian reaction? Because, as you said, not, not even just recent history, just history really is them totally dominating series in Australia. It was fascinating to watch being there and reading the papers each day because there's the real kind of anti-England sentiment at the start of an Ashes series, as there always is, and the opposite is true over here. But then as soon as Australia started to show signs of weakness, the Australian press completely forgot about England and started piling into the Australian side in really quite a vicious way. And there was, the team selection was wild. They were kind of going left, right and centre, picking players just because Shane Warne had mentioned them. You remember Xavier Doherty coming in for the Adelaide test? Pretty much because Shane Warne had said he should play. Uh, and then it was really interesting. It was, it was interesting to see what I've seen in England so many times with the wheels completely come off, the media go completely wild. But then all it took was the Perth test for it to completely swing around again. Uh, and suddenly the Aussie pass is really cocky again. And, and there's like Mitchell Johnson's back to his best, got his mojo back. And then within a session or two sessions at Melbourne, we've completely flipped. And then from Melbourne to Sydney, the kind of narrative was set for the rest of that, that tour. Uh, and it was just a procession for England, really. Happier times. Um, ben, what, what are you going for? Yeah, well, I've gone for a, a non-England one. Uh, but it's, uh, so it's the boxing test between South Africa and Australia in uh, 2008. And um, just uh, to give, I guess, a little bit of context, so I spoke to... So JP Doomley is called the main character, I guess, of this tale. I spoke to him uh, uh, just before the 2019 World Cup. And it was sort of for like a career highlights piece because it was the new kind of the career going to be coming to an end reasonably soon. Uh, and he, the, the thing that stuck out was just how much Aust- uh, South Africa prepared for that series, kind of ear- earmarking out like two or three years down the line that they were going to, you know, beat this Australia side. I think when it came to that series, hadn't lost a series at home for about 20 years. I think I'm right in saying. Um, and, and that was kind of the start of South Africa's like, away dominance when they didn't lose a series for seven or eight years after that away from home. Uh, so the series itself was a, a brilliant one. So the first test, South Africa chased down 414 in the uh, in the fourth innings and the second test uh the boxing day itself was kind of like a i guess a bit of a, a, a tort affair ponting made a, a brilliant hundred but staff could took kind of regular wickets australia would kind of sit down at stumps 
just under 300. Bark get a brilliant knock to get them up to near 400 the next morning. Uh, and then it seemed like it was all done and dusted when South Africa sort of slipped to 180 set for seven, 250 for eight. But they were going to concede a first in his lead of uh, about like, somewhere in the region of three figures and that would be done. Uh, but Dale Stain joined uh, JP Dumini and against an attack of... So Brett, Brett Lee, he settled when he was properly fast. And Mitch Johnson, when he'd taken a 8 for 60 in the first innings of the series and put on uh, just under 200 between them. Dale Stane scoring 76 of 191, putting out the defence of a top-order batsman. Dumini ended up 166 uh, and carved out a big enough lead for them to go on and, and win that test quite comfortably. And I, kind of, I think it kind of almost sums up that South Africa side, I think, and how they would actually win away test, which was basically just by kind of sticking in games for almost like as long as possible. Like if you have a bad session, don't make it a bad two sessions. Or if you, have, if you lose two wickets, don't make it four wickets. If you just kind of make it as hard for the other team as possible, then you'll get a chance and they would just snatch that like ruthlessly as they did there. Like it kind of, as soon as that Australia attack kind of like went off the pace slightly, like it was, so what it was doomly insane, but it was those two who turned to the sword, the sword and carved out uh, Matchman advantage. I think that was so. Doomley's his debut was the first test of that series when he scored a half century to seal that huge chase, and then 166 in the next game. And it looked like Zafka had found sort of a, a proper next great batsman. It didn't really pan out that way, but he did have a, a few more memorable innings against Australia at least. Ian Chappell said he was the, the best left hander he's seen since Lara, JP Doomley, uh, around that time. It's funny how it all plays out in the end, isn't it? But just, just talking of that South African team, what a team to have De Villiers. And Callis in the middle, all the Graham Smith leading them up top, and obviously with you know with Stain doing the business. It, it's kind of it's interesting. You, did you say seven debutants come going into this upcoming Test match for South Africa? Um, seven, seven in the squad. It's quite a big squad. squad, so technically none of them could play, but possibly one or two. Okay. Well, you just you look at the story of South Africa and you do fear for it because you think of the the, the scale and the substance of their cricket up until not that long ago and how quickly it, it's, it's dissipated. And obviously with the exodus as well, the, the talent drain from out, out of the country. Uh, on the one hand, you do fear for it. But then on, on the other, they do have this extraordinary ability to produce cricketers, uh, despite their system, despite everything that's kind of running against them. They do have this amazing knack for generating talent. Uh, and hopefully a few of these these. Uh, debutants that are coming back into the side can can bring them through again and bring make them a force again. But I have to say, from a, as a cricket loving perspective, you know, global cricket loving loving perspective, it, it is a concern. Will they ever be able to get back to that level again? And it's it's not just the level of talent coming through, the amount of talent. It's the consistency of that talent. That South African side barely changed for. I mean, they'd, they'd do a tour to England, they'd come back to England, they'd be basically the same side. I mean, maybe, maybe the spinners changed over that period of time, but otherwise, it's just the same. And now South Africa, every series they go into, they seem to have gone back to someone they'd ditched three years previously or to someone that is completely new. And the one thing they do seem to have, that they are, as kind of Phil was alluding to, they can bring players into the side who have really kind of outstanding first-class records and you wonder why they haven't got a chance yet. So there's no shortage of talent. It's just trying to work out how that 11 is going to have any kind of sustainability. Um, yeah, it's a really, really tricky job. I, 
I, I really hope South Africa can win this series against Sri Lanka. There's nothing against Sri Lanka, but I think South African cricket needs uh, some kind of uplift uh, and this would be a good opportunity. Moving on to um, our 2020 in review segment. Um, I've asked Ben, Phil and Joe to come up with their moments of the year, two each. Joe, let's start with yours. Oh, OK. Uh, my first one goes right back to the first test of the summer. Um, and it was Stuart Broad's interview after being left out of that, that first test. Now, I've picked this out. I, I don't necessarily agree with what Stuart Broad did here. I think he'd already written that Joffre Archer had to play uh, in the test in his column. Uh, we all know he thinks James Anderson should play. So actually, when he's sitting that, in that big brother chair, he's actually saying, although not quite saying it, I should be picked above Mark Wood. Now, if you haven't got kind of 500 test wickets behind you, you probably can't get away with saying that. I think people would have kind of a generally quite a low opinion of someone doing that. But Broad has a lot of leeway and I understand that. And whatever you think about it, it was an absolute masterpiece of an interview, the way he performed it. Um, and I, it was interesting hearing him talk on the Jamie Carragher podcast recently, kind of reflecting on that Uh and he described what he'd said in that Sky interview as a very diluted version of the conversation he'd had with the selector and coach, um, which I wonder, wonder what he said to them, which he didn't say to Sky, because it certainly seemed like he'd got it all out there. Uh, and I think he finished with the, um, talking to Carragher by just saying, to be honest, I couldn't have wished for it to have played out any better. And he really couldn't. I mean, he bowled, took 29 wickets at 13 across the rest of the summer. It was England's bowler of the summer. And most importantly, I think, and this was behind... Uh, the interview in the first place, England will think twice before dropping him again in uh, home conditions, I think. He really is excellent in, um, when he's interviewed. Did you, did you see him on BBC Sports Personality last night? I didn't, actually. No, when, when he was being... In, uh, he's particularly good when, when interviewed in a non-cricketing setting, I think. He's like a, a, a school kid being brought up to the headmaster's office um, for doing something quite good and then just puts on the best version of himself. Like, he, he was even pronouncing his T's slightly differently to how he... <laughs> Um, it was, again, another wonderful performance from Broad. Um, what was your other one, Joe? Uh, my other one, again, earlier in the summer, mid-June, um, we're hearing some positive things at that point from the ECB that um, recreational cricket is about to resume. Uh, lots of other sports have started again. Club cricket hasn't quite yet, but it seems like we're making some progress. And then Boris Johnson delivered the famous line that, as everybody understands, as everybody understands, uh, cricket ball is a natural vector of disease, um, which came as quite a shock to the ECB, who were engaged in kind of quite positive discussions with the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport at that point. And then uh, just so happens a week and a half later, Johnson uh, does one of his now customary U-turns, as we're becoming all too familiar with, uh, leaves it a week and a half later, just so it's not too ridiculous and says, actually, it's fine after all. Um, and I think the line was, I sought scientific advice and the third umpire has been revoked, said Johnson with a smirk. Uh, and club cricket was back on. So uh, obviously a frustrating passage there. Um, but ultimately, that was a great thing. And, and even it feels even more important now that things are obviously bleak and don't look great for the next couple of months that uh, a lot of us did have that opportunity to actually see each other and play cricket over the summer. And it was uh, a kind of a positive moment in a kind of turbulent summer. Yeah, I mean, Phil and I talked about it quite a lot on the Club Cricket podcast, but I got a sense this year that um, a lot of club cricketers enjoy playing more than ever. I guess they just appreciated more. And also we had a podcast first with um, us having an MP on to talk about that after Boris Johnson made those comments. 
Um, so a, a memorable moment for more than one reason. Phil, what are your moments of the year? Relatedly, it was uh, standing at second slip uh, in Dagnum on a windswept, horrible wreck, playing for my second team back in Essex. And uh, our Afghan tearaway gun, teenage uh, Quick, who'd been in England no more than seven or eight months, had come over with his, with his mother and, and his elder brother, who also now plays for the club. Uh, in his second game for the, for the club, he, he took the, the top end with the wind behind him and uh, cleaned up all 10, took all 10. 10 for 26 were his official figures at the end. Uh, and it was a moment that I've never seen before and probably will never see again. Uh, it, was, it was quite a profound experience, I have to be honest. Uh, and this lad, bashful, um, sweet natured and, ve and very smart, but his English is, is still developing. Uh, and when, he, when they were seven down, he, well, first he cleaned up the first seven, clean bowled the first seven batsmen. This is how fast he was on the day. And then when it was eight, and then when it was nine, we started to really realise something dramatic is going to happen here. But of course, this was just a 40-over game. Most, most clubs had to rejig their normal way of playing because of COVID and so on. And so we were playing 40-over straight games. That means eight overs per bowler. Now, after six overs, he had nine wickets. After seven overs, he had nine wickets. And that seventh over, incidentally, was a stinker. Uh, so he had six balls in which to get it. And, and I was at second slip, and we obviously had five slips and two short legs and this, that, and the other. And I looked around my team and realised everyone was in some kind of personal psychodrama meltdown because, on the one hand, you want to be a part of history. On the other hand, you don't want to be the pillar who drops the catch. And he, he's only got six balls to go. First ball was fast and wide. Second ball was short and flew past his face. And the third ball wrapped their number 11 on the back pad, absolutely plumb in front for a, for a tenfer. Uh, it was quite an emotional moment, really, and came no more than three or four weeks after Johnson had nonchalantly U-turned for the, only the third time that week. And so to get out there and, and play and to see something like that from such a, an interesting young kid as well with such a fascinating backstory. I mean, he fled war-torn Afghanistan just north of Kabul. Uh, yeah, that stirred my soul, I would say. And the other thing is Alistair Cook made 100 at Lords and, and the only professional cricket I saw all last year live. And I saw that and there was a serenity to that innings that, that was, was almost quite just as moving as seeing my, my boy Shaka a la Bazik run in and take 10. Are you, uh, are you going to be able to keep hold of Shaka next season as some of the, the, the big guns circling? for? Well, the, I asked him... I asked him if he hopes to stay at Gideon Park and Romford CC for, for the next few years. And he said, no, I want to play for England. <laughs> Full stop. So, yeah, we might, we might be struggling, I think. But then we are a big gun anyway, Joe, in our region. Thank you very much. Uh, right. We, we'll okay. see how we go. We'll see how we go. But the boy is destined for, for high-end cricket. We might not be quite able to provide him with that. We shall see. Something tells me he probably won't play for the twos again, at least. <laughs> no, this is true. This is true. But then hopefully I won't either. It's scandalous I was back in the Moody Blues. But anyway, that's another story. Ben, what are your two moments of the year? Well, mine sort of feel like cheats because they were, they were so long ago that they just feel like a completely different era, not just a different year. So the, uh, the first is the, the Cape Town test, which was technically this year, right at the start of January, which is probably just about the best cricket match of the year, you'd say, just ending up Manchester for me. Uh, and just especially that, 
that fine. Well, I mean, it, it was the whole thing, though. I mean, you had Amazon taking five on the first day and then sort of, uh, sort of getting an injury that was going to rule him out for the tour, but still kind of toiling away on the last day because he knew it was the last thing he was going to do. Uh, you had sort of Dom Sibley's amazing hundred, yeah, but really it was just Ben Stokes's, like another to add to the list of what you could call Ben Stokes's match. Um, there was uh, a, a crucial 40 on the first innings, then five catches in the second, which I'd basically forgotten about until going back recently, but that was also a joint world record. And then a brilliant 70 on the third innings. And then right at the end of the game, it looked like Stafford were just about to kind of hang on for a draw. He, uh, he comes on and takes three wickets and bowling, actually probably about as good a spell as he's bowling in an England shirt, really, on that on that final afternoon. Uh, and just, I mean, the thing with both of mine, I'll come to the other in a second, but both were just so enhanced by the crowds they were played in front of. And uh, for all what looks like might be quite a, a horrible winter, there is like the end of the tunnel that, you know, tickets are selling fast for the games in England next year. And we could yet see packed houses in, you know, July and August for some, you know, some, some cricket then, which would be like it's something to hold on to, I think. The, my my favourite moment from that test was uh, when Stokes took two and two uh, when England needed, England needed three wickets, he takes two and two. And the second one of those was when Zach Crawley, I think playing mm. in his second test match, uh, the ball, uh, he's, he's a fourth slip, I think, maybe gully, ball comes at him so quickly, he kind of gets a hand, hand to it, parries it up and takes it one-handed. And then all the people around him in the cordon, uh, uh, other England newbies, so it was Don Bess, um, Ollie Pope, and Dom Sibley. And I thought that was, was a really cool image of the four of them, four kids making their way in Test cricket, um, which was quite a hopeful start, start to the year. What, what was your other one, Ben? Yeah, well, well the other one was the, uh, the, the, the T20 World Cup final at the MCG in front of a, an absolutely massive crowd. I, I was lucky enough to actually be there. I guess that's the... The, the last live professional cricket I've seen for this year. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, as, as far as the game goes, I mean, it was something of a, a dud in that Australia won it in the first 10 overs, kind of in the first over when he was dropped and then smashed a couple of fours, I think. Uh, but it was, a, it was a, a brilliant performance from Australia and just a, an incredible occasion. Like it was just a, a kind of amazing just sort of being outside as the crowds were milling around and there was... You know, lots of families, lots of people who probably hadn't been to a huge amount of live cricket before, but just so much kind of like pure excitement at seeing like these players who are, you know, properly heroes in Australia and, you know, household names and seeing them in like a, the kind of stage that they hadn't been able to play in front of before. Uh, and then obviously, you know, <laughs> Casey Perry surreally kind of topping and sailing the thing with a, an amazing opening shot, uh, opening set, which because uh, I mean all the pictures are from the are from the Australia team sort of dancing on the stage at the end, but the uh, yeah the opening set with uh, this like this huge stage in the sort of the shape of the you know the, the, the females not not the female toilet side I'm sure it's got a, a better name than that but uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but that and then you, and I think that all I remember is thinking like not, there's no way they're going to get this away in time for for the toss and for the start of play and they did. And then, uh, and then Australia cruised it and then had the mother of all parties afterwards. And yeah, those were two points and it felt like 2020 was going to be quite a good year and it, it didn't quite pan out like that, but that's, that's what I'm going to try and remember, I guess. Nice. Do you have um, any yes? Yeah, I've got, I've got two. One, uh, number one was also before the pandemic. It was Bangladesh's under-19 World Cup win. So I was out there in South Africa um, and, the, and the best, or the, the two teams going into the knockouts that looked to, to be 
the most complete sides were Pakistan and India. Um, India knocked out Pakistan early in the tournament and then going to the final, India were overwhelming favourites. Bangladesh had quite an easy run to the final. Um, they didn't have any standout stars like India did. Who um, India had a couple of players who, who completely dominated that tournament up until that point. And India were cruising the final. Uh, I think they were 100 and 150, 160 for two or three, and then totally collapsed, um, being skittled for 177. Um, and then uh, Bangladesh just about squeezed home. Um, and then there were the final was at um, Potchefstroom, which is about an hour and a half drive southwest of um, Cape Town, uh, southwest of Joburg. And it's, um, it's basically a university town, very small university town. So it'd be, it'd be like holding a a, a cricket match at, at Loughborough, basically, in terms of the, the the size of the town. But there were so many Bangladeshi fans there. Obviously, Bangladesh had never won any ICC tournament before. Uh, and then at the end of the game, the, the the fans went truly mental. I don't think I've ever seen a reaction to a team winning a cricket match like that ever before. The only thing that stopped them from getting onto the pitch was some very good work from the security team, basically. Um, but that was, that was an amazing moment. And the other one, um, I'm surprised no one actually mentioned it, um, before was was Crawley's two six seven. Not only was it a um, you know, one of the most emphatic ways in which a, a young English talent has announced themselves as a, a player of global interest, I guess. Um, it was also brilliant that he proved both me and Ben so badly wrong on this podcast that brought us some of our more entertaining moments in the podcast this year. Um, so th- those those are mine. Um, some of our listeners have got in touch to send theirs in. Billy Johnson suggested a few. Hugh Jardins, six for nine for Cockermouth CC. That's Ben Stokes' old club. Um, James Vince getting a wicket for England against Ireland. Joe Root's magic ball to David Warner. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. That, that, was, that was very good. I'm glad somebody remembered that. Um, <laughs> and also Joe Root's <laughs> in the blast. Arnab Seal says Michael Holding's speech ahead of the first test of the summer. ESPN Quick Info's Matt Roller suggested Ireland's win over England at the Aegeus Bowl, um, which which obviously was an amazing moment too. And, th- and there are so many that we haven't really mentioned as well. So got the, the Wokes-Butler partnership at Manchester, broad reaching 500 wickets, Anderson getting to 600. Um, yeah, not, not just the, the, the holding monologue, but the, the, the coverage with Evany Rainford-Brent as well before that first test. The West Indies win in that, in the, to kick the summer off. Sarah Glenn emerges as, a, as an England regular. Um, the emergence of so many young players in the Bob Willis Trophy, um, most notably Tom Lallenby. Um, and as Ben's explained on the show before, there, there were just so many crazy finishes in the T20 Blast this year. Um, so although it has been a long and at times miserable year, uh, cricket has still somehow produced many moments of magic that we'll look back on fondly in years to come. And, and finally, finally, there's a new mag out this week, Joe. What's in it? Uh, well, the cover story is the uh, Joe Root exclusive interview that, that Phil did a few weeks ago that we've mentioned a couple of times on, on the show, looking ahead to England's uh, Monster 2021, where they play a huge amount of test cricket and there's a huge amount up for grabs, a kind of potentially legacy-defining year for Root as, a, as test captain. Uh, elsewhere, um, throwing it back to Joe, he's done a masterful uh, review or revisiting rather of the... Uh, series 20 years ago in Sri Lanka that England somehow contrived to win 2-1 uh, a series described as the most bad-tempered series ever played by one or two people who were there. He's interviewed some of the, the stalwarts who survived uh, from, from that, those, those test matches. Uh, Ashley Giles has interviewed and one or two others as well. And that's a really good kind of retrospective building into what's hopefully, fingers crossed, going to 
going to be a, a two-test series from the start of January, so that's a, a lovely piece. Uh, I interviewed I interviewed Ian Salisbury. That that went well. Um, brilliant man, truly brilliant man. Very moving and touching interview. Uh, you have to get hold of that to read it, really, because it's 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 one of the more affecting interviews that I've done personally in the last few years. Uh, other things, Joe. I was just going to say, actually, on the that England tour of Sri Lanka of twenty years ago, I, I think yeah, as we might be looking in a bit more depth into that series ahead of England's latest tour. Yeah, that's um, right. In, in the new year, we'll be um, yeah, kind of basing uh, a podcast on on the feature you wrote, speaking to a few players from that tour. So watch out for that one. Yeah, because it was yeah, it's extraordinary series. Lots of good uh, subplots going on there. Um, we've also got an interview with Mohamed Youssef about his career in the game. Very interesting character to speak to. David Gower talks us through his perfect day at the cricket, which will be the final one of that series because we have a new columnist uh, as of 2021 in Andy Zaltzman, who we're very pleased to welcome to our stable. Uh, and, well, the mag's out on Christmas Eve, so I think if you go and order it now, it's probably not going to arrive in time, is it? But you can get a digital copy if you need instant gratification or order it now and then it'll arrive when you're just about fed up of everyone you're living with uh, if you're lucky enough to be with people this Christmas or you can have some company in the form of Wisdom Cricket Monthly there we go anyway cheers guys this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast if you enjoyed the show please tell your friends we'll be back with one more show before the end of the year where we'll be previewing what's to come in 2021 and looking back at the Boxing Day Test have a great Christmas cheers Podcast Network.